Good to see all of you this morning. And um, it's our privilege to welcome, uh, to have with us this morning, Dr. James Renahan. And he is a dean and professor of historical theology at the Institute of Reformed Baptist Studies at Westminster Seminary, California. Jim is also one of the pastors at Christ Reformed Baptist Church in Vista, California. And he and his wife, Lynn, have been married for 38 years and have five grown children and eight grandchildren. And he is the author of several books, including True Love, Understanding the Real Meaning of Christian Love, Edification and Beauty, and most recently, Faith and Life for Baptists, as well as articles in many Christian magazines and scholarly journals. He studied at Liberty University, Seminary of the East, and received his Ph.D. from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And on a personal note, as I related to him as we met last evening, as a Baptist pastor many years ago, uh, struggling to understand all that the Bible had to say about uh, covenant theology, someone passed along to me a, a CD of a conference that Brother Renahan did, and it was one of the things God used. It was very instrumental in helping me to clarify some of those ideas, and I do appreciate that. So please, uh, Dr. Renahan, come ahead and uh, may the Lord bless you. Well, good morning. It's really great to be here with you today to meet you, to get to know you a little bit, and I want to say thank you to you for the uh, the kind and warm uh treatment that you give to my daughter and her family, or maybe I should say my daughters, since two of them have been here uh, during the summertime, uh, really thankful to God that she has a place to, to come where people love her and love the boys, and uh, so it's good to be able to express my appreciation to you. Um, let's begin with a word of prayer. Oh Lord, as we bow before you and begin this day, we thank you that you've given us today to worship you and that you are pleased when your people gather together, mingle their voices in praise, and listen to your word as it is proclaimed. We ask that today, here in this place, you would be honored you would be magnified, that our Lord Jesus Christ will be exalted, that your Holy Spirit will work among us. Thank you for all of the blessings that you give to us in abundance. May this be another day in which we close our eyes and say thanks to God for all that you've done. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I've been asked to talk a little bit about um, the Baptist Confession of Faith from the 17th century and to put it into something of an historical context. And I thought, as I considered this, I thought, well, a good place to begin would be at the Reformation itself. And one of the questions that confronted both the Lutherans and also the Reformed as their churches grew and as they came to understand the doctrine of justification by faith alone, they were confronted with this question. Where was your church before Luther? Where was your church before Luther? Now, that was a very important question that came forth from the Roman Catholic apologists because they 
they argued for a kind of historical continuity for their church. Um, I'm sure you've heard of the doctrine of apostolic succession. And so far as they were concerned, a true church is a church that can identify itself by means of this succession through the bishops and through the papacy all the way back to Peter and from Peter to our Lord Jesus Christ. That was their claim. And when the Lutherans broke off and then the Reformed churches in various cities throughout Europe began to break away and they faced the question, how do we legitimize our church? That was the question that, that came to them from the Roman Catholics. Where was your church before Luther? What, what is your claim to legitimacy? How can you demonstrate that you are a real and genuine, a true church? What, what proof do you have? And this, this was especially focused on the public ministry of the church. What right do these men that you call ministers have to preach the word of God and to administer the sacraments? If, if they don't have ordination from a bishop who is able to trace his ordination through the papacy all the way back to the New Testament, what legitimacy is there in your churchly acts, in your proclamation of the word, and in your administration of the sacraments? And if you can't prove that, then they're illegitimate and you're not a church at all. This, this became a really pressing issue. And the Reformed churches and the Lutherans had to deal with it. One of the ways that they did so was by developing the practice of confessionalism. Now, there were several creeds that, of course, had existed from the days of the early church when it was necessary for the fathers of the church to clarify the doctrine of the New Testament is over against various heresies and errors that developed in the early church. The Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, uh, the earliest of them, the Apostles' Creed, a summary that was an intentionally um, focused upon distinguishing truth versus error. So there was, there was already a mechanism in place. And the Lutherans first, and then later on the Reformed churches, recognized that they could use this established method to identify themselves. So, so very early on in the Lutheran Reformation, Luther himself begins to publish catechisms. He had a larger catechism. He had a smaller catechism. The Lutherans adopted uh, what was called the Book of Concord. And the Book of Concord included the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, the Athanasian Creed, the Augsburg Confession. And these were the documents that the ministers of the Lutheran churches subscribed to in order to demonstrate their orthodoxy. Now, you see what the claim was. The claim was, we believe the things that the Christian church has always believed. It's Rome that has deviated. Um, someone has said, and, and I think that there's a lot of validity to this, that in some ways the Reformation was a debate over how to use the church fathers or who was the proper heir of the fathers of the church. You see, Rome was claiming that it was the, the continuation of the doctrine and the practice of the fathers of the early church. And the Lutherans and the Reformed after them came along and said, no, wait a minute, we're the true heirs of the fathers of the church. Our doctrine is their doctrine. i give you a really interesting example of this. Uh, you know the English Puritan John Owen, uh, I, I, in my opinion, the greatest English-speaking theologian of all time. 
there's no one that matches up to, to Owen in terms of his understanding of scripture and his putting together theology. In volume four of Owen's works, which is dedicated to an exposition of the work of the Holy Spirit, he has a long chapter that is devoted to um, conversion, how conversion happens. What are the evidences of true conversion? Because he wants to argue that this is absolutely necessary, that when we preach the gospel, we simply don't declare some, some, some kind of philosophical concept, but it's intended to change the lives of people. Well, what happens when people are converted? And he does a really brilliant thing. It's a long chapter, but he does a really brilliant thing in that he goes to St. Augustine's Confessions. And he uses Augustine's confessions. He quotes them at length. But he uses Augustine to give an example of what true conversion from unbelief to belief is really about. And you can read that on one level and say, okay, St. Augustine's experience where he was a, he was a sort of a wild young man and then he was tempted by uh, an ancient philosophy that was thoroughly pagan, and finally he comes to faith. You could say, that's a good example of conversion. That's true. But there's another level at which you need to read Owen. And the other level is Owen is using St. Augustine to say, he belongs to us, not to you. You see, you claim Augustine is one of the great doctors of the church, but in his doctrine of conversion, here's a demonstration of the fact that Augustine belongs to us. Now, Owen doesn't say that. But that's obviously what he's intending by such extensive use of one of the great fathers of the Roman Catholic Church. Augustine belongs to us. And so you have this battle that goes on in the Reformation era and in maybe the next 150 years after the Reformation to struggle with identity. Who are we and how do we relate to the church historically? How do we relate to the New Testament? So you, you have the Lutherans beginning with uh, the Book of Concord and the creeds and the confessions that they publish. Then the Reformed in their cities begin to do the same thing. In 1536, there's a confession that comes out of Geneva. In 1563, there's the very famous, wonderful, beautiful Heidelberg Catechism. It comes from the German city of Heidelberg. In 1566, in the face of persecution from Roman Catholics, um, Guido de Bries published the Belgic Confession, another very important document among the Dutch churches. In 1619, at the end of the Synod of Dort, they published the Canons of Dort, and Heidelberg, Belgic, and the, the Canons of Dort become the three forms of unity for the Dutch churches. That's how they identify themselves and distinguish themselves from Rome. Now, in England, you have a recognition that the same type of approach to identification, to um, uh, a sense of who we are, is very helpful. And after, well, when the Reformation begins to really take root in England in 1552, the English church begins to publish confessions. First, it was the 42 Articles, and then that was revised in 1563 to the 39 Articles, and the 39 Articles are still today the doctrinal standard of the, the Church of England. Well, the, the English Reformation is a, is a really fascinating story of everything that happens in the 16th century and on into the 17th century. We don't have the time to tell all of that story this morning, but within the, the English Reformation, 
there was a large number of men, ministers, who had to flee during the five-year reign of Queen Mary. Mary, you know, was uh, um, King Henry VIII, in a sense, brought the Reformation to England. He was followed to the throne by his son, Edward. Edward died as a teenager. Mary was the next in line. She was the oldest child, but because she was a woman, she wasn't first in line to the throne. When she came to the throne, she wanted to return the English church to Rome. Uh, Her mother was Catherine of Aragon. She was all of her life a committed Roman Catholic. She wanted to bring the church back. And so a a five-year period of return to Rome and persecution of anyone who held to the Reformed faith began in England. Well, many of the the leaders of the Church of England had to flee across the channel, to especially to Geneva or to the German Lutheran states. And for several years, they were able to observe firsthand, in a, a certain context of freedom, how the Reformed faith or how the Lutheran faith was working its way into churches. When Mary suddenly died and Elizabeth came to the throne, they were able to return to England and they brought with them the things that they had learned and the things that they saw. And they wanted to move the Reformation forward in the Church of England and begin to show or or to, to replicate what they had observed on the continent during those five years. Now, Elizabeth was um, not really supportive of the agendas that were brought over by these men who had fled. She wanted sort of a halfway house in the church. It looked Roman Catholic, but it wasn't subject to the Pope. It was somewhat Protestant, but not really. It was in between. And there were a lot of men who were very uncomfortable with what they perceived to be a halfway Reformation. Sometimes her... um, Her reformation is called the via media, the way in between, the middle road. And they weren't happy with this. So you begin to see a developing Puritan movement in the Church of England. Some of it comes as a result of their their opposition to things like vestments, uh, the, the priestly robes that were required in ordination. In fact, there was a, there was an ordination of a bishop. And it was said by the authorities that he had to be ordained to his office as bishop, wearing all of these this paraphernalia, and he refused to do it. And in many ways, that's the beginning of the Puritan movement, by saying, no, the word of God does not require us as ministers or as bishops to be ordained in this way. That's the old Roman Catholic way. We should not do that. Well, this Puritan movement begins in the Church of England, but it it takes two forms. There's the long road and the short road. Now, the long road was something like this. I want reformation. I want thorough reformation in the Church of England, but it has to be done gradually. Let's let's take the long view, and maybe it will be my grandsons, if they grow up to be ordained in the Church of England, maybe they will see a fully reformed Church of England, and perhaps they will have the opportunity to see things that I don't can't see right now, but let's incrementally and gradually move towards that goal. So I might have to live with things that make me uncomfortable right now, but I'll live with them for the sake of the long-term hope. But there are others 
who wanted reformation and wanted it right now. A man named Robert Brown, who was a minister in the Church of England, published a book in the 1580s that was called A Treatise of Reformation Without Tarrying for Any. Now it tells you, the, the topic tells you. And some people have called them hasty Puritans who, who were unhappy with the long view, with gradualism, but wanted Reformation immediately and were calling upon the church to involve themselves in Reformation. And you have this struggle through the last three or four decades of the 16th century in the Church of England between a growing and powerful Puritan movement and those who are willing to be subject to the Queen's wishes and maintain this middle way. This struggle goes on. Well, it continues on into the 17th century when, when Elizabeth died. She was unmarried. She didn't have any natural heirs. Her cousin, James VI of Scotland, was chosen to become the, the king, and he came down to England. Now, the, the English Puritans had a lot of hope with James coming down from Scotland because Scotland was a country in which there had been a thoroughgoing Reformation. It really was a Presbyterian country in 1603. And the, the assumption, bad assumption, but still the assumption that was made by the English Puritans was, James comes to us from a Presbyterian country, Perhaps he will agree to our agenda and we'll be able to see further reformation in the Church of England, really make it a Presbyterian Church of England. James came down and James came to power and a conference was held at Hampton Court Palace, which is on the south side of London. If you ever get a chance to go to London, make sure you go to Hampton Court Palace. It's really a fantastic place. This conference was held there and there were representatives from the Puritan movement who produced or presented King James with the, the demands that they had for the reformation of the Church of England. And James was perfectly unwilling to grant any of their demands except for one. The only demand that he, he gave into was their request for a new translation of the Bible, which of course is the 1611 King James Version. That was a result of the Hampton Court Conference that uh, was held in, uh, in London around 1604. One of the, the things that James said to these Puritan representatives was this four-word phrase, no bishop, no king. No bishop, no king. Now that's a takeoff on um, uh, a phrase from Cyprian back in the third century of the Christian era when he said, no bishop, no church. But James changes it a little bit. He says, no bishop, no king. Now, you have to understand what's going on. There's about 10,000 parishes in the Church of England in the 17th century. And there's no means of mass communication of any kind. They didn't have telegraph and, and uh, you know, rudimentary means of communication, never mind email, where you're able to communicate around the world in a moment. But they had the church. And the church... Theoretically, was a place where everyone in the nation would assemble every Sunday. You were required by law to attend the Church of England parish where you lived. So theoretically, the entire nation came together every Sunday in church. And James knew that the church was a means by which he could control the population of the country. A couple of different ways you could think about this. One, let's say that James wants to communicate his will to all of the nation. 
So he calls in his bishops and gives to them a decree and tells them that they are to copy it out and send uh, copies of this to all of the parishes. Probably within about two weeks, theoretically, everyone in the nation of England would be able to hear the declaration as it's read to them in church. That's the best means of mass communication available. Likewise, James recognized that the attendance at the church, which was kept every week by someone who was appointed in in that church, attendance at the church was a means to keep an eye on the radicals in the nation. If somebody wasn't at church, questions would be asked. Now, of course, if they were ill, if uh, the the cows were giving birth and they had to stay with the cows, things like that, that's, that's understood. But if there's a pattern of absence, questions would begin to be asked. Why is this person absenting himself from the church? Is he going back to Rome? Sometimes that was a possibility. Or is he being radicalized and in some treasonous way arguing against the continuation of the Church of England? You have this dangerous situation that begins to develop. And so persecution begins to come upon those who we might consider Puritans. They didn't use that name for themselves. They typically referred to themselves as the godly. Puritan was sort of a slur against them in their age, like fundamentalist is today. You read the media, you see the word fundamentalist, it's used as a slur against everybody who believes that the Bible is inerrant and infallible, right? Well, Puritan was that kind of a term used against them. We use it positively. They wouldn't have used it for themselves. Well, as the story goes on, uh, James dies in 1625. His son Charles I comes to the throne. Charles is uh, married to a Roman Catholic and is very much willing to entertain Rome as a legitimate church in England. Now, this, this was fearsome to the Protestants because they knew that, for example, when Rome had power in France, it had used its power to slaughter the French Protestants. When the, the Edict of Nantes was revoked, uh, there was a bloodbath in Protestants. And the English Protestants were terribly afraid that if Rome came back into power, the same kind of result would come and they would be slaughtered. And so you begin to see a conflict between Parliament and King Charles I from 1625 onward. In the 1630s, Charles dismisses Parliament and tries to rule on his own. And of course, Parliament is largely made up of those who are sympathetic to the Puritan movement. When Charles, after about 11 years of personal rule, recognizes that he simply can't do anything, he needs Parliament, he calls them back. And the the, the, the short story, it's a fascinating long story, but the short story is, that Parliament goes to war against the king. Parliament at this time is controlled by men who are sympathetic to Presbyterianism. And you have a civil war that breaks out in 1643. Now, the the Parliament, forcing the king out of London, he takes up his residence in Oxford, Parliament um, determines that they will move forward the reformation of the Church of England. And so they call together an assembly of theologians. Divines was the name that they used. And that is what we know as the Westminster Assembly. 
It convened on July the 1st, 1643, in Westminster Abbey. If you've ever been to London and you've been to Westminster Abbey, try to imagine several hundred Puritans, along with a Puritan parliament, meeting in that place. It's, it's almost incongruous to think about, but that's exactly what happened. And they met in Westminster Abbey for the next five years or so. Now, the original brief that was given to the Westminster Assembly from Parliament was to revise the 39 Articles. Remember them? We talked about them before. Revise them. And they got through the 15th of these 39 Articles, but the Civil War was going badly. And Parliament recognized that it needed help, and so it appealed to Scotland for help, Presbyterian Scotland. And the Scots said, we will help under certain conditions. One of those conditions was, we want some commissioners from Scotland to be welcomed into the Westminster Assembly, and we want you to put aside your revision of the 39 Articles. We want a new confession of faith altogether. So Parliament agreed to this. There were other conditions as well, the, the solemn, pardon me, the solemn league and covenant and others. But Parliament, needing the help of Scotland, agreed And so this revision of the 39 Articles was put aside, and the Westminster Confession that we know and love began to be produced. Uh, First there was the Shorter Catechism, then the Larger Catechism, then the Confession of Faith, all of these documents that have been incredibly helpful to all of us. That really, the Westminster Confession sets the stage for 17th century or Puritan-era confessionalism in the English churches. Now, there's a whole lot more to the story, but by the time that that the king is executed in January of 1649, the Presbyterians in some ways have lost power in Parliament. Cromwell has risen to power, and now you have a Protestant Parliament that's more congregational than it is Presbyterian. Uh, Do you ever think about this? The Westminster Confession is an English document. But where do we generally associate it with? What country? It's Scotland, isn't it? Do you ever think about English Presbyterianism? It really died out by the time you get to around 1720. English Presbyterianism is dead. The reason that the Westminster Confession has been so influential is because of Scotland and because of Scottish Presbyterian ministers who came to America and brought it with them. In the 16, after the king is executed in 1649, the English authorities are presented with a circumstance that they've never faced before. How do we govern a country without a king? How do we do this? And there were several attempts, different styles, different means that they tried to put together to find a way to rule the country. Ultimately, uh, Cromwell becomes effectively a king, although he doesn't take the name. It's actually offered to him, but he refuses to take it. Now, during this period of the 1650s, as I said, Presbyterianism, in some ways, is already beginning to lose its power, and the Congregationalists are coming to power. And in 1658, a group of Congregationalists or independent ministers are called together in London, to meet at a place called the Savoy, to revise the Westminster Confession to be a little bit more suitable to the now pretty strongly present 
um, congregational churches that exist in England. And they, they take, John Owen was one of them, Thomas Goodwin, another name that you might know, was represented there, Jeremiah, no, Burroughs died before. Um, um, these men came together, and their task was to revise the Westminster ever so slightly, in a sense to do away with the Presbyterian parts of it, and also the, the strong doctrine in the early Westminster Confession of Faith that tied political power to the church. You know, the Church of Scotland and the, the, the Kingdom of Scotland were the same. The Congregationalists recognized that there needed to be some kind of separation between church and state. And so in 1658, they produced what's called the Savoy Declaration. And the Savoy Declaration was there, it's a very mild editing and revision of the Westminster Confession of Faith, taking away Presbyterianism in all of its fullness, and taking away that close relationship between church and state where the, the civil magistrate, the, the political power, had the right to enforce certain principles of Christianity if you failed on them. The Congregationalists didn't believe that the, the, the sheriffs or the political authorities should have the right to enforce matters that were governed only by the church. So you have this slight revision that comes out in 1658. They also, alongside of it, published something called the Platform of Polity, which was their attempt to describe how a church is to function. So now you have two English confessions um, that, that are, there's a parent and there's a child. And they're so close to each other that when you look at them, you see the resemblance. Uh, some people have said that some of my kids look a lot like me. Well, that's because family resemblances happen. When you have the Westminster Confession and the Savoy Declaration, you have a very close family relationship. No one would look at them and fail to recognize how intimately they're related to each other. Well, alongside of the independence, there was another congregationalist movement that was growing in England, and that was the Baptists. In 1643, in the face of terrible persecution, that came from the king. This is right at the time, just before the, the Civil War, and uh, the circumstances were very dangerous in London. The Baptists who were there in London issued a confession themselves. It's called the First London Confession of Faith, published in 1643. Now, that's before the Westminster Confession was published, about four or five years before it came out. So they weren't able to rely on the Westminster Confession. And what they did was they used what was probably the best available Puritan confession to them. It had been written in 1596. It was called the True Confession, and it was uh, written by some English Puritans who had to flee to the Netherlands during a period of persecution. They took that, and they used it along with a couple of other documents to produce what we call the First London Confession. It was examined pretty closely by several theologians, and pronounced to be orthodox, but they had certain concerns about it. Things like, for example, that they, uh, at, now this is still 1643, they denied the relationship between church and state. Remember, that doesn't come until the next decade in the Savoy Declaration. They deny the relationship between church and state. They deny, for example, that tax money should be used to support the ministers of churches. And this was criticized. 
And so the Baptists recognized that um, they needed to respond to these criticisms, and they revised their confession of faith to, to fit the criticisms that were made of them. The, the whole purpose of publishing this confession was self-identification. It's to say, we're not wild-eyed fanatics, but we believe the same things that you do. And that's why men could examine that confession and say, on all the fundamental issues, they agree with us. But they have these other doctrines that we're unhappy with. And of course, believers' baptism was one of them. Well, let's fast forward a few years. And uh, in 1677, once again, um, a, an era of persecution has come. When Cromwell died in 1658, once again, they're struggling in England with how to govern the nation. And in 1660, they decide they need a king again. Charles II, the son of the executed king, was in exile on the continent. Parliament extended to him an invitation to return. And he made promises in 1660 that he would recognize and support the tender consciences, that was the language, of what, were, what we would call the Puritans in the Church of England. But he went back on his word. And in late August of 1662, he forced several, a couple of thousand Puritan ministers out of the Church of England. And from 1662 to 1689, when William and Mary come to the throne, you have sometimes periods of ferocious persecution. You, you know the story of John Bunyan. Now he spent more than a decade in the Bedford jail because of his preaching. Well, that, that's just one example of many. During this period of time, uh, the Presbyterians, the Congregationalists, the Baptists were all facing a period of great, um, great persecution and opposition. And uh, it's interesting what, what the Baptists did. In 1677, they decided that it was time for them to have a new confession of faith as well. And what they, they did was they took the Westminster Confession and they took the Savoy Declaration. Now, at this point, in 1677, these are the best available English confessions of faith. The first London was written before Westminster came out. Now you have Westminster and you have Savoy, and the Baptists want to express their faith to the world. And so they take the Westminster Confession, and they take the Savoy Declaration, and they do exactly what the Congregationalists did in 1658. They massage and edit and revise that document, and they publish in 1677 what we call the Second London Confession of Faith. Now, you may have heard of it before as the 1689 Confession. The irony is it was not published in 1689. It was published in 1677. The reason that it's been called the 1689 Confession is that a general assembly of Baptist churches was held in London that year, and they adopted it as their confession of faith. So it's, it's known to us by that date, even though that date doesn't have anything to do with its publication. So far as we know, it was printed in 1677 and 1688 and in 1699, but not in 1689. Well, that it, it's really interesting that they did that. Because what they were doing was saying, we want to identify with these ministers and these churches that right now are in the furnace of persecution. They didn't adopt it to protect themselves. They were actually exposing themselves to the same kind of danger 
that the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists were facing from the fury of the English government, from especially the Church of England and the bishops, who are powerfully opposed to Presbyterians, Congregationalists, and now the Baptists say, count us in as well. So they published this Confession of Faith. I, um, I printed up, uh, where did I put them? Here we go. I printed up um, something that came out in 1678 from one of the, um, the um, Congregationalist ministers. And he's talking about the Baptist Confession. Listen to what he says. Your orthodoxy and soundness of judgment in the main fundamental doctrine of the gospel with that love to truth, moderation of spirit, and Christian charity afore taken notice of, appearing in your late confession and appendix thereunto annexed, are greatly commendable. And I hope I may truly say they have endeared you not only to me, but to all that love our Lord Christ in sincerity. That's the evaluation of someone outside recognizing what the Baptists said in their confession of faith. Let me, let me, now it follows the Westminster Confession very closely. And uh, if I can go back to my family illustration, you have the parent and the child, now you have a grandchild. But the family resemblance is still the same. Let me suggest to you five emphases that you'll find shared, four, the first four of them shared by all three of these confessions. The first is, that these confessions are all orthodox. And what I mean by that is that they reflect all of the doctrines of historic Christianity. Now, attached to these confessions, you don't find the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, or the Chalcedonian Declaration. But if you know those creeds, and you read what the Westminster Puritans wrote, what the Congregationalists adopted and the Baptists after them also adopted, what you read is the familiar language of the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, and the Chalcedonian Statement. It's embedded in the confession itself. And so we don't have a confession and then these other creeds. We have a confession that incorporates them in. So when you read chapter 3, of God and of the Holy Trinity, you say, this is Nicene Trinitarianism. Or when you read chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator, you say, this is the doctrine of Chalcedon from A.D. 451, exactly stated in this place. And so these confessions are all thoroughly orthodox, and they reflect the, the beauty of the doctrines that were held by the church through the ages. Remember where we began? Where was your church before Luther? By these confessions, they're effectively saying, our church before Luther was where the fathers are, because we believe the things that the fathers believed. Secondly, the second thing about uh, all three of these confessions is that they focus their attention on covenant theology. In fact, the way that they're structured from chapter 7 of God's covenant all the way through chapter 20 which in Savoy and in Second London deals with the extent of the gospel and the spread of the gospel. It's a chapter that was added. It's not explicitly present in the Westminster Confession. It was added by the Congregationalists. And all it does is talk about how the gospel spreads. From chapter 7 through chapter 20, that whole central section that deals with Christ and that deals with the blessings of salvation, how those blessings are granted to us, what we receive in our salvation, all of those are related to the doctrine of God's covenantal purpose. That in eternity, God determined he would save sinners, 
And the means by which he would save sinners was through the means of covenant. Of course, that's how the Bible itself is structured. You read the Bible and you recognize there's a covenantal relationship between God and Adam. We call it the covenant of works. There's the covenant with Noah. There's the covenant with Abraham. There's the covenant with Moses. There's the covenant with David. And there's the new covenant. That's how the Bible is put together. And our Puritan fathers recognize that fact. And all three of these confessions have this um, in common. It's the central structure of the middle, uh, the most important part, perhaps, of the confession. The third thing that they all emphasize is the doctrine of sovereign grace. They, they're thoroughly reformed in terms of their commitment to the sovereignty of God. They express the reality of sin and depravity in the lives of all of the descendants of Adam. They express the fact that all those who find salvation are, find that salvation because of the result of God's eternal purpose in election. That God sent His Son specifically and particularly to die for those who are eternally elected. That God, by His power, calls them out of the death of their sins and gives them new life. And that God is the one who keeps them. He began a good work in them. He keeps them until the last day. And all of these doctrines of sovereign grace are clearly taught in all three of these confessions. Now, the fourth emphasis that you'll find in them is that they focus attention on on a forgotten, or no, not a forgotten, but a neglected and sometimes misunderstood doctrine. And that's the doctrine of Christian liberty. You know, Calvin said that you cannot properly understand the doctrine of justification unless you understand the doctrine of Christian liberty. And John Owen, in a a really remarkable um, passage, says that the second principle of the Reformation was the doctrine of Christian liberty, that it was so central to the Reformation. Now, in my opinion, we misunderstand many times what the doctrine of Christian liberty is. Some people turn it into a kind of antinomianism. Well, God has set me free to do whatever I want to. That's not what the doctrine of Christian liberty is. Christian liberty teaches us that when God gives us commands, we must obey those commands, but where he has not spoken, we are free. See, it's very carefully stated. And if you look at the structure of the Westminster Confession, the Savoy Declaration, and the Second London, from chapter 20 in Westminster, or 21 in Savoy and Second London, remember I said Savoy and Second London added a 20th chapter. But from 21 onwards... You have the doctrine of Christian liberty first laid out in general terms and then opened up in issues like marriage. What is my liberty or what are the rules that govern marriage? What about the civil magistrate? What do I owe in obedience to those who are politically over me in power? And where am I free from their power? Where do they exceed their power? What about the church? Where does the church have the right to exercise its authority and where does the church go out of bounds in its authority. Um, All of these are issues of Christian liberty, and we find them emphasized from chapter 21 through chapter 30, or chapter 20 uh, onward in the Westminster Confession. And then the last two chapters of the Confession deal with the world to come. And they deal with what I call cosmic eschatology, meaning um, the, the end of all things, but also personal eschatology, what happens to individuals, what happens to believers, what happens to unbelievers. 
Now, the fifth area of emphasis that you find in the Baptist confession that is slightly different from the other two is what you'd expect from a Baptist confession. It's where it talks about believer's baptism as over against infant baptism. But that's that's about the only place that you find a difference. Now, grandchildren do sometimes look like the grandparents, but sometimes not in some ways like the grandparents. And you, you, in a sense, when you look at the Baptist Confession, the Second London, you see very closely that relationship, that, that um, um, I can't think of the word I want right now. You, you, you can see the family resemblance, that's the word, but you can also see a difference. But the difference isn't until you get to this fifth point. So the idea, the purpose of the Baptists in publishing their Confession of Faith was to say, we are like you, we're not different. Uh, in fact, they said this. Now, I guess my time is up. I won't take the time to read that. Um, th- they were very concerned with demonstrating the, the similarities and not emphasizing the differences between them. Uh, that answers the question, where is your church before Luther? Where was it? Well, it's in the history of the church, and we identify with them by our confessions. Well, I hope that that's helpful to you. Brother, you said we could have time for questions, but it's 10.30, so we probably don't.